Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Uh, we're going to work our way through that, <clears throat> through that passage this morning. Um, <clears throat> if you want to know Jesus better, one of the best ways is to go through the Gospels. Okay, That's one of the best ways to know Jesus better. If you, and the Gospel of John is one of the best Gospels. I, I didn't really... You know, till I started doing this studying in this, I just had forgotten how much unique material and stories that you only see in the Gospel of John. So, you know, as you're reading through the Gospels from time to time, we circulate through this, uh, uh, through this great book. And we're investing time to walk through this, uh, this, great, uh, this great Gospel. So, John 17 is the prayer that Jesus prayed at Gethsemane, okay? Now, it's not recorded anywhere else, not Matthew or Mark. Why? Because John was privileged. Remember, he called Peter, James, and John away at this moment. So John is privileged to hear this prayer. We're going to go through John 17, and then you'll see in John 18, as soon as they get through, as soon as he gets through praying, man, he's arrested immediately. So this is kind of the Gethsemane prayer kind of kind of fleshed out. Now there are two, you know, two important prayers. They're they're all important that Jesus prayed. Uh, but but really there are two that are well known. One is the Lord's Prayer. I hope you pray it every day. Start your day with it. I started my day with it this morning. The best 20 seconds you'll spend in your life is starting your day with the Lord's Prayer. The second one is John 17. John Knox, the great revivalist from Scotland, preached through Scotland. Man, all kinds of revival came through his preaching. God used him in a great way. But when he was on his deathbed, he told his wife, bring me John 17. It was an anchor to my soul. And as he slipped into heaven, she was reading this great prayer. We all know the Lord's Prayer, and we know it well, but I'm telling you there's great value in the prayer of John 17. So it's Jesus' last hours, last few hours. So what does he do? What does he do? How does he spend his last few hours on earth? He spends it praying. When his back's against the wall, what does he do? He prays. What a great example for us that when our back is against the wall, when we have no other answers anywhere else, man, we seek God and we pray. We've got to be people of prayer. We've got to be a church of prayers. So this is a great example here. And if I could say to any student, college student, man, if there's one, you know, one habit that I could get you to do, and that would be pray regularly. Talk to God. Listen to God. Some of your most important decisions that you will make are in the next five to eight years, and you really need to hear and know God well. So I would just encourage you there. So here's the setting. If you remember, he had the Passover meal, which he washed the disciples' feet. He announced the betrayal of Judas, 
and the, the denial of Peter. Then he does, you know, we've talked about the last few chapters. He did the vine and the branches and uh, John 14 where he talks about heaven. But now he's really kind of, really at the moment, he's kind of left that upper room and he's in Gethsemane. Those of you that have been to the Holy Land, you've been to the, you know, the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's the setting. He's very overwhelmed at the moment, okay? If you'll remember in the other parts, uh, the other Gospels, when he comes to this, like, like in Matthew, here's the term that he uses, my heart is overwhelmed with sorrow even unto death. Even unto death. He's like, I, I, I can't handle this. I, I'm, you know, I, I, am, I just feel like I'm, a, I'm about to, my heart is about to burst, in, in Luke, Luke gives us another little insight to Jesus' mind and heart in this, in this moment when it says that uh, even a, the Lord sent an angel to minister to him. I mean, he's not doing well at this point. Man, the weight of what is about to happen and all the implications of that are now resting upon the shoulders of Jesus. And Luke also says that that pressure and that stress was so great upon him that blood began to seep out of his, you know, out of his sweat glands that he began to, he began to bleed. So he, this is, he's praying at this moment. What can we learn from Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane? All right, so let's, let's walk through this. What can we learn from Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane? So before we read, to pray to pray for and to submit to God's will, even in difficult circumstances. To pray for and to submit to God's will, even in difficult circumstances. So this is a heavy burden that Jesus uh, is carrying, and he prays in a way that we've never seen him before. But man, there's a pressure upon him that we've never seen before. And, and you know... You know, you've, you've heard this passage because he prays, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. If it's possible, Lord, if there's any way that I can, can pass what is about to happen, please let that occur. But then he follows up, yet not as I will, but you will. Lord, can, can we revert to this sacrificial system? Can we just stay where, we're, where, where we have Ben, and the Lord doesn't answer. God doesn't answer him. And, and Jesus doesn't leave either. Lord, Lord, not my will, but Lord, as your will. And then as he prays, listen, he doesn't pray for deliverance. He prays for strength to do God's will, okay? He doesn't pray for deliverance but he prays for strength to do God's will. So let's look at 17.1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven. So he's looking at his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. And they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work 
you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world had uh, world began. So he says, this hour has come. Like, it's within the hour, okay? Like, like that season of the three years that he lived with the disciples, and, you know, like, if you've watched The Chosen at all, if that, that thing's done anything for me, it's just kind of given me a little more insight to kind of the day-to-day life of the disciples as they're traveling, they're fishing, they're serious moments, there's moments of debate, there's lots of laughter, there's guys being guys, you know, you just can't, you, you just can't stop that competitiveness and teasing each other and, and that three, that three years, it's over. It's over. He says the hour, the hour has now come. And when Jesus refers to his glorification, that sounds like a great word, you know, like a kind of a, a fun word. But there's no way for Jesus to get to his glorification except through the, the brutal execution style murder that he is about he is about to experience. So when he talks about and mentions his glorification, he's actually talking and referring to his own death. Now Jesus, through his ministry, he, he referred to, let's talk about that death, that glorification. Let's put ourselves in that moment. He said, the hour is come for me to be glorified. This hour, it's, it's here. It's on me now, Okay. So Jesus in the Old Testament, he made reference, he made 180 references, either direct quotes or references to the Old Testament, okay? So he's well-versed in the Old Testament. He was a good, you know, Jewish boy, you know, raised up in Hebrew school, taught the Old Testament, you know, uh, he, he knew it. We see at the age of 12, he even kind of understands what his role is, kind of why God sent him. Even at a young age, he had this revelation of, of what God's plan was upon his life. So I want you to go back maybe in Jesus' life, when he, maybe he's in Hebrew school, maybe he's, a, he's 12 or 13 years of age and he's studying the scriptures that he's read so many times. And today's study, today's reference comes from the book of Isaiah. So he's reading, he's in school. Today we're going to read Isaiah 53. Let's imagine you're Jesus at 13 years of age, and this is the first time that your eyes come across this passage. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. If you're Jesus, what are you thinking? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. 
We all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What, what if you're 13 and you're reading this for the first time? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before a shearer is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet of who of his generation? protested for he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people he was punished he was assigned a grave with the wicked with the rich in his death though he had done no violence nor deceit was in his mouth yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin How do you think Jesus felt when he read that the first time? And he realized, hey, that's, that's, that's talking about me. Maybe he goes to his mom. Mom, have you ever read Isaiah, like 53? She's, no, I, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I don't want to think about it, okay? I, I want you to understand in his mindset when he is willingly walking into what he called glorification, but it was actually his death. You see, we, listen to me, we experience here sin, shame, and judgment. But then when we come to salvation, it is replaced with righteousness, forgiveness, and freedom. And it feels good, doesn't it? It feels good when you stand up and you know that your sins are forgiven and your name is written, you know, in eternal life. It feels good to know that you've been cleansed and whatever you have been done, it's been forgiven and God doesn't remember that anymore. Second Corinthians says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's such a great feeling. But it was the opposite for Jesus. Because as he gave us his righteousness for the first time in his life, he took sin upon his shoulders. You see the weight of that coming on him. The sin of all mankind. Shame, dirty, the burden of sin, the loneliness in separation. So we rejoice, but in this moment, when you see this despair, you see blood coming from, you know, from his forehead. It's because that weight of sin has been placed on his shoulders and he now realizes maybe even, you know, he knew it was coming, but for the first time he's feeling the effects of that upon his life. And then this puzzling scripture for me, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He didn't walk away. He didn't turn away. He faced what he knew was going to be a brutal time. But here's the, the emotional irony here. It says, for the joy set before him. What? What? For the joy. 
There was a love, there was a purpose that he, that he knew that he was accomplishing through his death, through his, through his glorification, and he joyfully walked into God's plan. Can I say, if you're here this morning and you're, you're away from God, can I tell you that there is no greater demonstration of love than you ever have than that in the, in the person of Jesus that he voluntarily took my sin, your sin upon his back so that you could have new life, your sins could be forgiven, and that you could have fellowship with Jesus. What a great message for you. If you're here today and you're away from God, today's the day to accept that free gift. And, 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 and then just reminder for us, this passage, to pray for and to submit to God's will even in difficult circumstances. What can we learn? That sometimes it's not always easy. Sometimes God has a different plan or purpose for our life than we had planned. Sometimes there's a different end than we have planned. And we don't need to run from that, but there's a point where you, you realize I'm just going to keep walking. And I promise if you're walking in God's will, man, God will, God will bless you. God will be with you through that entire, that, that entire episode of your life, that season of your life. All right? To pray for and submit to God's will, even in difficult circumstances. He, he did that. Let's look at the next part of this. Prayer, what can we learn from Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane? I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. And glory has come uh, to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect me. Uh, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. All right? This is important. He prays that the disciples will know the power of his name and prays for their spiritual protection. Okay? The mission of the world now rests upon them, but he's going to give them a key to this, to this time in their life. And that key is the name of Jesus, okay? That name is different than any other name. You know that? Sometimes we use it kind of casually, you know, in the name of Jesus. On all things we ask, in the name of Jesus, we're praying, and it's just kind of has this kind of sometimes poetic flair. Sometimes it's just maybe ritual and routine. How do we end a prayer? Well, you got to end it this way. So we just, we just say that. But I just want you to know that this morning that his name is different. There is power and glory that is attached to the name of Jesus. But they, they were baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Demons were being cast out in the name of Jesus. 
people were being healed in the name of Jesus. Silver and gold have I none. But what I have, I give up to you. In the what? In the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And then he explained, by faith, in the name of Jesus, this man who you see was now made strong. There is something about the name of Jesus that we need to remember. There is power and there is glory uh, attached with that. There is no other name on earth where men can be saved but the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is the glory to God the Father. So he said, I want them to remember the power of my name. It's not just another name. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we are admitting the self-sufficiency of our own name and our own power. All right? We're, we're admitting that when we use his name. You know, the CEO of Capital, Capital City Bank, I don't know his name, but he can walk in any branch capital city and people tremble okay because his picture's up on the wall now if he goes to regions bank he they don't care who he is because he, he has no authority there he can go into Publix, start ordering people around nobody's going to move because he has no authority there i just want to tell you in this realm that we we are very limited okay there is a spiritual realm that you and i operate in that your name and my name doesn't mean anything but in that realm the name of jesus man heaven snaps to attention and hell takes a close look at what's happens what's going on he said i want you to remember the power of my name when we use that name we, we acknowledge our own insufficiency. We identify with the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Okay, so when I use that name, when I use that name, I told you there's power with that name. But if there is no cross, there is no resurrection, then that name is just a historical name. But because of his power, I mean, or the cross, because of his resurrection, that name is different. And when we use that name, man, heaven stands at attention. We pray in his authority. We come with the authority of Jesus, okay? All right? You're in school. Wasn't it a great day when you had a substitute teacher? Oh, my gosh. It was like, it was like a day off. If you're a substitute teacher, I'm so sorry, but that's what people think. But you know that. That's why they act terrible. You know, because that individual, they don't really have any authority. They don't. They're just there trying to get through the day, and I need a day off, okay? But it's different when the teacher comes in, okay? Because the teacher, the teacher can do something, all right? So we, when we pray in his authority, man, we are cloaking ourselves you know, with, with his name. So I'm not coming in my own influence. I am coming with his name, praying as a, an adopted son with the full rights and heir as a, as a family member. I'm praying that. He said, I want them to remember the power of my name. I want to say to you, I want to remind you of the power of his name. I want to remind you when you speak and when you declare and you decree and you use the name of Jesus, there's power. There's no other name like the name of Jesus. So he said, I want them to 
understand the power of my name. But then he also prays for their spiritual protection as well. He also prays for their spiritual protection. Very important that we remember this. Can I remind you that we're in the midst of a culture war? We're in the midst of a culture war. The gospel of secularism and humanism are being preached across the different pulpits of America, the different unusual pulpits of music and media, okay? The, the, the pulpit of uh, some, some of our governmental laws, the, 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 the pulpit of some of our colleges and universities who've totally bought in in their, you know, in their curriculum to secularism and humanism, and these are the, the very popular, influential pulpits of the day, we're in a culture war. Right? Culture war of marriage. They took what was sacred and now they've pulled it into the civil, you know, the civil realm and doing whatever they want to with marriage, sex, sexuality, abortion. I told you, I, I couldn't believe the other week that, that they're really considering laws that you can abort up until the day before birth. I, I'm just speechless that, 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 that we've gone so low that people, you'd think good and decent people advocate like uh, against violence, against the unborn. I'm, I'm blown away that we're even having that, that, even that discussion, but there's a culture war on. Secular curriculum in, in public schools, some in public schools and in our universities where faith is ignored, muted, or distorted, okay? There's a culture war on. We hear the term now that we used to never hear, socialism. That was always an affront to, to our country. And as they try to sell the economic benefits of socialism, there's a bother to me because you, you, you make and sell economic benefits, but all its ugly twin sister is the denial of religious freedom. So they try to sell the, the financial part and, and, and we're kind of buying into that as a nation and whatever you think about economic policy, that, that's your choice, but I'm just telling you, I'm concerned you know, about, about the expression of religious freedom. There's a culture war going. There's a spiritual war as well. I'm concerned about Christian schools, the long-term viability of Christian schools and and their capacity to, to uh, use faith as part of instruction. I'm very concerned about Christian colleges and universities. And I think that's where the, the, the first battle of the culture war is going to happen. I'm concerned about the pulpits of the United States. that They will be free to preach God's word without interference, government interference, societal interference. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about that. I'm worried. I'm worried about that. It's a spiritual warfare as well. You can be shamed from where you go to church. Some of you work in certain parts, you know, where you just, you almost have to hide that you go to church or that you're a Christian, okay? You almost have to just be discreet on that because they'll, they'll, they'll associate you with other things and you could not get raises or promotions. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You just got to be careful how you handle it. Chris Pratt, he's an actor. 
not really known for any you know, great godliness in his life, but he just mentioned on, I think it was the Tonight Show, that he had gone to Hillsong's church a few times, that he had been attending there. Well, man, the whole Twitter world just shamed him. You know, why would you be there? It's, it's anti this and anti that and anti, you know. Listen, there's a spiritual war that's going on as well. And I want to tell you, too, in the church, we see the slow drift of people, the slow drift of people, not necessarily turning their backs on Jesus, but slowly drifting away from the faith. All right? We're seeing that. A, but, but that's part of the enemy's plan. To some, he would never get you to change your doctrinal beliefs on Jesus, you know? But he can, he can just kind of affect you kind of where you just kind of, kind of drift away, you know? 65%, you know, 10 years ago, people identified as Christians. They did that same, same study now. It's 55%. We've lost 10% identification in, you know, in, in 10 years. So I want to, as he prayed for spiritual protection, I just want to remind you how important that is. Okay, it's important. It's important, you know, and we need to pray daily for physical and spiritual protection for our families. Okay, I just want to remind you, don't don't get comfortable here. We we need to be covering our families in in prayer. When I was a kid, our my school's about six six blocks away, and from first grade till eighth grade, my best friend lived across the street. We walked to school six or seven blocks. Okay, first grade. I'm like, Mother, what are are you thinking? I'm in first grade. You know, we used to ride our bikes in the neighborhood all times of the night, you know. We we don't do that stuff anymore, okay. We we live in a different world. I just want to remind you that as Jesus is praying the prayer of protection, in that hour, I mean, I know it was a, a very dangerous hour for the disciples and he's praying over them, but I'm just saying we're living in that same hour now. We are living in that same hour that we need to pray God's protection. Jesus said in the Lord's, you know, in the Lord's prayer, you know, deliver us from evil. So I just want to remind you that from time to time there are attacks that come on the child of God and they are not just random happenings, but man, there's, there are times of spiritual warfare that it's not random, but it's pointed at you. Job found that out when he was offering the sacrifice and praying for his family every morning. Man, spiritual attack came. Jesus at his closest time to God on the Mount of Temptation found his greatest attack. I want to remind you that the prayer of protection is still something that we need to do today. He prayed for us to uh, to pray for and submit to God's will even in difficult situation. He prays for the disciples that they'll know the power of his name and prays for spiritual protection. And we're going to do this at the end. I want you to know that. What else? Verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, Man, we wanted him to take us out of the world, right? That was, we should have been another prayer. That, that'll happen. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, that they are not of this world, even I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify just means set them apart. They have a mission, okay? They have a mission. Set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world. Look at this. And I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself 
that they too may be truly sanctified. So in this prayer, he prays for effective ministry, strong Christian character, in spite of a corrupting culture. Okay? He said, I'm sending them. I'm not praying that they'll be removed. I'm sending, I'm praying, you know, I'm going to send them in. So when we think about this, you know, Christians either separate themselves from all evil or they live like the world. Okay? They, they tend to do one or the other. They kind of have this bunker mentality. I, I'm not going to be, you know, tainted by evil, so I'll cut off all my associations. I'm going to wear only Christian T-shirts. You know, they used to have Christian bumper stickers, but you guys drive crazy, so they don't do that much anymore. We're only going to watch The Chosen. That's all we're going to watch. We're only eating at Chick-fil-A. God's chicken. That's what we're doing. That's how we'll show the world. And we drive by Chick-fil-A and there are cars around. We're just going, praise God. Praise God. We live in Tallahassee. We, we think franchises are, you know, like God's favor. You know, we got, we got God blessed us. We got a, a Chick-fil-A and they built one across the street. Revival is here. Revival is here. We, we kind of bunker ourselves, you know, or, you know, or we just live like the world except we go to church, you know. We, we live like the world, so there's kind of these two extremes, you know. Well, Pastor, you said to be a friend of sinners. Yes, I did, but I didn't say be the sinner. I just said be the friend of one, okay. So sometimes we kind of go to one or the other. But Jesus said, I'm sending them in the world. I'm sending them. There's a, there's a purpose for them. I want them to plant seeds, shine light, show people that God, you know, show people that God loves them. So he sends them in the world. He sends us in the world. And sometimes he sends us in difficult places, okay? Difficult work environments, difficult neighborhoods to be a light, you know what? But he's already said, Lord, set them apart. Set them apart for this mission. So he's just saying, there may be times that I send you in difficult situations. But man, through, through that, that work of truth in your heart, through strong Christian character, effective ministry can be done in a corrupting culture. I'm not pulling you out. I'm sending you in. Okay? He's not a... He's not, Sounding the gospel of retreat. He's saying, hey, there's going to be difficult times, but I want to use you in the midst of what, in the midst of what's going on. Let's let God do that. Last part. What can we learn from Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane? Look at 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you, uh, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you've given me, that we may be uh, as one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. So he prays for unity. 
Jesus prays for all believers to be in unity so their unity would be a witness to the world of Jesus' love for them. Really important, okay? So unity is an underappreciated value, okay? It's not something you always think about, you know, until it's gone, until it's gone, okay? Your home life's going well. Your kids ever fight? That ever happened in your house, you know? My, my worst household fight was when I think they were 12, 10, and 7. It was over French fries, okay? It sounded like Tyson Fury and Wilder downstairs. Unbelievable. French fries everywhere, ketchup everywhere, people crying. Yeah, I mean, you know, but up to then, I mean, you don't always appreciate it till it's, till it's gone. You don't appreciate unity till it's gone. How many have been in a church you don't raise your hand, but just it's been through a messy time. Been through a been through a tough, a tough time, you know? So unity, unity is important, but you don't always appreciate it till it's gone. Unity, being agreeable in spirit, even though you disagree with someone's actions, ideas, or decisions. Unity of the heart, not uniformity of thought. Last week I had I had lunch with Pastor Faez, the pastor at North Florida uh, Baptist, we'd kind of met a couple times, but I had, I had lunch with him, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, now you know we got some differences in our churches, right? You know that, okay? And you know, <clears throat> in that lunch, we discussed those. We discussed them for one minute. But you know where we spent most of our time? Just sharing our testimonies of how we came to Christ. I shared my story. He shared his story. Our pathway to ministry, studies, books we've read, you know. Now, let me say, too, he's a University of Miami fan. We had just crushed them at that point. So I did take a moment to revel in that, okay? But you know what? Because... Because unity is about, man, I, I see the same 80% of the time. I'm not going to let the small things kind of divide me. So we spent one moment on the controversial topics. And we just had a great lunch. We swapped numbers at the end. And I just felt like I have a, another friend that's a colleague here, you know, here in this, in this city. Okay, because unity is not about everybody thinking the same on every topic. It is about uh, having the spirit, hey, that we are, we are united by a greater purpose. Okay, now I want to say thank you to the church. Because we've been, you know, like the church world since the pandemic started has been through the most unbelievable season. I've been in ministry a long time. We've had pandemic, you know, we had social and racial unrest. We had a contentious election. We've had all kinds of different things that have gone on, you know, in the world. And I have colleagues whose churches have torn over those things. Masks, vaccinations, political infighting and belief in the church. And I just want to say thanks to you We've not had any issue there. I want to say thank you. Now, that doesn't mean we all believe the same on everything. But what we did was go, hey, we're going to leave our differences as the, at the door. 
And when we come in here, we come as, here as sinners saved by grace. The primary message that needs to be sought in this world is the message of gospel and not a church that's fighting. Okay, And I just want to say thank you that even through a difficult time, we have not had to navigate through that. Okay, And I want to say also in the future, we're not going down any political path. This is not a church of politics. This is a church that's founded on Jesus and points to the cross of Jesus. And that is our ultimate message. That's the, that's the ultimate message, you know, is, is that. And I, I, but our world, our world seems to revel, you know, in, in fighting and arguing. You know, last week they said the social media platforms, their algorithms are set for the most controversial topics. They just keep cycling through. You know, just to, to get people riled up. I'm going to tell you, I don't watch opinion news shows anymore. Because it just, it just made me mad. That's what they want to do. They're just not to educate. They want you angry. And that's up to you. I'm just not spiritual enough to watch them, okay? Because unity, you know, unity is important. But unity also has an evangelistic purpose. Did you see what, what Jesus said? May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know, when he's talking about unity, that you have sent me and have loved them as I have loved you. So there's an evangelistic quality when there's a church that comes in to unity. People that see fighting everywhere, they come into the house and they see people unified. There's an evangelistic quality to that. Now let me just tell you. We're not ever going to get any credit. You think the Tallahassee Democrat's going to be here with an article on the unity in Generations Church? No. But you let there be one little sniffle of problems, I promise you they'll be in here. Worship team, you can come. You can come. The church, unity in the church, it's an underappreciated value, but it has an evangelistic purpose. He said, when they see you all together, they're going to know that I've sent you and that I have that I have loved them, okay? I'm, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, you know, as, uh, as many kind of nationalities and skin colors and languages that we have, we just don't have a race issue here. The world fights over race. I've said it. Let the church be the example to the world that people that come from different backgrounds and different languages and their skin color looks different can live in harmony because we're united by the message of Jesus. Let the church be the example. I mean, we've got here in the deep south, deep south, this coming Friday, we're launching African Fellowship. I hope this place is rocking on Friday night. The solution to a broken world is a united church. They'll try to fracture us because when churches fight, the diversity of the message is gone. They're not focused on Jesus or the cross. They're focused on this and that. So he prays for unity in his disciples. He's praying for unity in the church. Because, and I'll say it again, the solution to a broken world is the United Church. When people come in, they're people.
people that have vaccines, people that don't, people that wear masks, people that don't, people that vote this way, vote that way. They think this on certain topics and that on certain topics, but they leave it at the door when they come in. And then when worship happens and we all lift our hands, we leave all that other stuff, we leave it at the door, and we focus on Jesus, okay? So there's some great things that we can learn from Jesus' prayer to pray for and submit to God's will, even in difficult situations. He prays that the disciples will know the power of his name and prays for spiritual protection. He prays for effective ministry, strong character in spite of a corrupting culture. He prays for all believers to be in unity so that their unity would be a witness to the world of Jesus' love for them. Okay, That's some good stuff in that prayer. You can get that outline and pray and pray over that. All right, let's do some prayer this morning. Lord, we thank you for the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that it's not a name just relegated to a historical event. But, Lord, it is attached to the cross and the resurrection. And you are glorified this morning. You came through that horrible death and you sit this morning at the right hand of God. And, Lord, we come and we pray in your name this morning. Would you just start to do that? Whatever your wall is, whatever your burden is this morning, and we're not going to use that name casually this morning. When we speak it, there's power that's with that name. It is a a name associated with the cross and the resurrection. Would you just start to call out and pray this morning, whatever your need is, whatever your burden is, and let's pray Let's pray in that name this morning. Lord, we thank you that that name is exalted above all other names. At the name of Jesus, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Lord, as they spoke the name, uh, your name at the man at the gate, beautiful, they were healed by the name of Jesus. Lord, we pray healing in the name of Jesus this morning. Lord, I pray deliverance in the name of Jesus This morning, I pray restoration in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for financial resource this morning in the name of Jesus. I pray those that are discouraged and depressed this morning in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you'll touch and heal. Lord, those that feel hopeless this morning. They'll know by that name, Lord, that there is, there is hope. Lord, there is, there is healing in their future. We pray over that name. We pray that name this morning. Oh, God, you tell us to, that we would know the power of that name. Lord, we do. I want us to pray over spiritual protection. He said it. He prayed that over us. Can we do that right now? Can we just pray over our families and our homes? Would you just take a moment? Lord, we, we pray for divine protection this morning, Lord. We pray over our children. We pray over our grandchildren born into a culture war and in the midst of very intense spiritual warfare. Lord, we cover them with prayer today. God, we cover our homes. God, we cover our children today. Lord, that they would be unblemished by the world, but Lord, they would have their hearts attuned to you, sanctified by your word, set apart by mission, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray for physical protection over our families today. We pray for spiritual protection over them. Oh, God, we pray. We pray today. And, Lord, we plead the blood. Lord, as you brought protection over the homes of those that in in the Passover time that put blood over the door frames, Lord, we plead the blood over our homes. God, we pray for your protection today, Lord. We pray for your protection today. Lord, we pray Psalms 91 protection this morning. He will cover you with His feathers. Under His wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at noonday. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. God, we pray. We pray that Psalms 91 protection this morning. We pray that over our our families and our homes, Lord. We pray that as we live in this world, Lord, we won't be influenced by it. God, we pray that we would be committed to mission. And Lord, with, with, with sanctified by your truth, we can walk in difficult places tough places, Lord, you're sending us there. Lord, in, 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 in difficult and adverse circumstances, Lord, let us shine as a light. Lord, some of them are already in those places in their work, and I pray, God, that you will strengthen them. Some are already there in their school situations. I pray that their light would shine bright, Lord, that you would use them in a, in a tough time. God, I pray for unity. I pray for unity in our homes. Lord, if there's fighting and disruption in our home, Lord, I pray for repentance and restoration. I pray for unity of the home. Lord, we pray for unity of the church. We pray, God, I thank you, Lord, that we walk in unity. Lord, I pray because we don't know what's around the corner. Lord, I pray that we'll walk in unity. Lord, because through unity you can use us to show the world of the love of Jesus. Lord, when the, when the world sees fractured stuff everywhere, let them see in the church. Let them see unity today. Let them see unity. Lord, we pray. We pray. We pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Can we just praise Him this morning? Can we praise Him this morning? Can we praise Him? Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.